0: That's why reflective democracy is so important. We know, I certainly know, that reproductive rights are the basis for opportunity for women. And if we don't have reproductive rights, we don't have opportunity.
1: I'm Evan Smith, the CEO of the Texas Tribune, and you're listening to Conversations with the Texas Tribune. A rebroadcast of the Tribune's extended sit-downs with the most interesting, influential, and iconic figures in politics and public policy. This week, it's the year of the woman, and Texas is playing catch-up. Some progress was made, surely, in the 2018 elections, but our state government clearly does not mirror the constituents it serves. Only a fraction of those in elected office and other positions of great civic responsibility are women. To discuss this, we convened a truly exceptional group to talk about gender, power, and leadership at this year's Texas Tribune Festival. Moderator Alexa Ura, a reporter for the Texas Tribune, spoke with Wendy Davis, a former state senator from Fort Worth and former Democratic nominee for Texas governor, Ava Guzman, a Republican who sits on the Texas Supreme Court, Linda Livingstone, the president of Baylor University, and Sanfronia Thompson, a veteran Democratic state representative from Houston. This important conversation was recorded live before a capacity crowd at Capital Factory in Austin on September 28, 2018. Conversations with the Texas Tribune is presented by BP. The energy we produce serves to power economic growth and lift people out of poverty. The way heat, light and mobility are delivered is changing. BP aims to anchor its business in these changing patterns of demand rather than in the quest for supply with a real contribution to make to the world's ambition of a low-carbon future. More at BP.com. And by The Panacea Collection, a 360-degree event production and experiential marketing firm With an expansive boutique furniture rental, environmental styling and staging operation in-house, Panacea Collection creates inspired experiences, whether it's a summit of political or cultural thought leaders or the high-end hospitality and talent lounges at the nation's largest music festivals. Learn more at PanaceaRentals.com.
2: So it's been a tough week for a lot of folks. And it seems, for lack of a better word, fitting, that we're sitting down to talk about gender, power, and leadership at the end of this sort of week. I was originally going to open this panel by listing off statistics that really highlighted the underrepresentation of women in leadership roles in each of your fields. But it really seems that if we are measuring progress that women have made, we cannot ignore the act- what's taken place this week. Between the Kavanaugh hearing and Dr. Ford's testimony to the response to allegations against State Senator Charles Schwartner and the University of Texas investigation into those allegations, I wanna open up by asking each of y'all, how do we measure the progress women have made in our society when we take stock of the sort of events that have dominated this week?
0: I'll start. (laughs) Um, Good morning to all of you. I'm sure there are a lot of both women and men in this room right now who are feeling similar emotions that I am having today. I was telling Representative Thompson earlier when Hillary Clinton lost her race, I was despondent and disappointed and upset, like a lot of people were. But today, I am raging. And I am raging because I thought we had gotten further than we are. That's the politest way I can say it. I remember so clearly a few weeks ago I sent out a tweet when these allegations about sexual improprieties by Brett Kavanaugh came out that this time it would be different, that We had advanced so much that the Me Too movement had put men on notice in this country that women were not going to take these things literally lying down anymore, and that if they ignore us, they will be held accountable. And yet, and yet, here we are. with a committee that will advance this Supreme Court nominee. I don't know what the full Senate will do, but I do know that I now feel more committed than I ever have felt before to checking white male privilege and making sure that I am doing everything I can joined by as many of you and others who will help to make sure that we do that. It is 2018, and I am 55 years old, and I have watched the evolution of the way that women are treated in a way that I hoped would mean things were going to be better for the two granddaughters that I now have, a two and a half and a two month old. And here we are, and yes, I'm raging. Um, and so the short answer to your question, we're not where we need to be, but we have the power to make sure that we get there and we're going to do it. I believe that.
2: I'm curious for the rest of you, what, what has this week been like in, you know, the idea of we thought we were farther along than we are?
3: Well, when it came to believing uh, Dr. Ford, I had to think back of the children who are coming forth and said they've been abused by priests 30 and 40 years ago, and people believe them.
0: That's right.
3: And what's wrong with not believing her?
4: And of course, I'm one of your nine justices on the Supreme Court of Texas, and I approach issues not from a political viewpoint, but but from the viewpoint as a jurist, who at times is called upon to to make uh, decisions interpreting statutes and that sort of thing. And so I take this back to the Constitution, and I think this week has been tough for everyone, but especially for Americans and for their trust in our system. But nonetheless, we all have to go back to the Constitution, to Article Two. It gives a role for the Senate. It's advice and consent. And so you have heard, like I have heard, um, things from both sides. And what we lack when we listen, in, on many occasions, is uh, civility America needs to go back to a place of civility where we can disagree, but not be hostile about it. In fact, disagreement is necessary for a democracy. We don't wanna live in a democracy where everyone is on the same page. Um, And then I I go back to due process, to, to the presumption that is foundational to America to our system of justice to the rule of law and that's that you're innocent until you are proven guilty and so but this this is particularly difficult because this is not a legal proceeding this is not a criminal trial this is not a civil trial so Americans are struggling well what do you do i said that i cried during both of their testimony when dr ford testified i cried because i could feel her pain i'm a woman that I came of age, uh, you know, as a working woman in the 80s. I'm also a Latina, and, and anyone who, who understood the world as it was in the 80s for working women knows what harassment is and that sort of thing, but then when I, when I heard Judge Kavanaugh testify, that also brought me to tears, so it is a difficult time in America, and those decisions are, you know, are going to be made in the Senate But the most important thing that we could take away with, from my perspective, is respect for our Constitution and doing our part. Is if we don't like the way things are playing out, then we shouldn't have the voter turnout that we have, particularly in the Latino community.
5: You know, I look at this as a university president about sort of how you look at these things on a university campus, and our role is to educate men and women, and at Baylor we talk about educating men and women for worldwide leadership and service, and so I think one of the things for us as we look at what's gone on this week with all of these events, you didn't even mention the Bill Cosby uh, decision that was made this week in, in the context of all of this. And, and for us, it's thinking about how do we educate our students in a way that they can think about how to approach and, and try to find truth in these really, really difficult issues where you have two stories, things happened in in a context where it can be very difficult to get to the truth. Uh, And we deal with these kinds of cases on college campuses all the time. And how do you help students think about how do we get to the truth in a way that, as you said, is civil, is fair to the people in the process, and gets us to a good place, and, and frankly gets us away from the partisanship. Because what's happened, particularly with what we saw yesterday, was complete partisanship in the process where in many ways you feel like nobody actually really cares about getting to the truth, and, and these are very difficult decisions that have huge impacts on the lives of the people involved, uh, not just now but in the future, and, and we have to find ways in these kinds of circumstances to, to be willing to have a process that allows the truth to come out and to allows perspectives to be heard so that we can try to find out as best we can what really happened in these circumstances, and again, on a university campus, that's what we're trying to do is help our students know how to think through really difficult issues, ask the right questions, evaluate information appropriately, so that we can try to, in a nonpartisan way, find solutions to these very, very painful and difficult issues in our society.
2: We're we're gonna talk more about sexual harassment, obviously, but I first wanted to sort of lay the groundwork for the power structure that we're talking about. I mentioned those statistics um, earlier that I'll lay out. Uh, Only two women sit on the nine-member Texas Supreme Court, Of the 10 major universities in the state, you can come fight me later over the universities I'm labeling as major, (laughs) only three are led by a woman, and women who make up half of the state's population only hold a fifth of the seats in the legislature. Often when I point these things out or when I write about it, I inevitably hear from someone who says, why do you make this about gender? That doesn't matter. And I'm curious, looking at the roles that each of y'all have held, What would be your response to that individual? What case would you make about how having more women in these leadership positions changes? Whether it's legislation, dynamics, go ahead.
3: Let me tell you what I I see when women, particularly progressive women, when they come to the legislature. They come with a set of tools uh, that relates to family. How do you take care of the family? And that encompasses, health care, education, minimum wages, uh, a series of things that impacts the family and society at large. And having to run a household, whether they're single or not, uh, they come with a lot of experience to help us uh, work through things. Uh, they understand it's imperative to have a pre-K through college education, they get that. And it helps some other persons to be able to see and realize that it's cheaper to uh, put money on the front end than to have to take put it on the back end. It is much easier to educate and be able to develop the potentials of children at an early age and to break the pipeline to prison situation than it would be to take care of them uh, on the other end. And they also bring within that toolbox the realization that we'll never, any of you, and certainly none of us here, be able to build enough institutions to house people because they, we, have lacked, we have not educated them properly, we have not provided the tools that they need to be able to help themselves. We will never be able to build institutions, nor a system of of public assistance for them. But it would be so much easier if we can help them to be able to build themselves and to develop their own potentials, and not only to be able to work, but to appreciate some of the aesthetic things in our society, our museums, arts, and to be able to relax and to be at peace. And they understand that when people have trauma, that trauma needs to be treated and it needs not to be ignored.
4: I'm gonna add one more statistic that most people don't know, and that's that in the history of the Supreme Court of Texas, there have only been eight women that have served full-time on that court, uh, you know, for over well over 100 years. And so, uh, when we, but when I think about myself as uh, someone who's run statewide, uh, as the first Latina elected to statewide office, as the highest vote getter in the history of the state, no matter what office anybody's ever run for, I, I became the highest vote getter. And um, I say that because the focus for me has not been. I don't want anyone to vote for me because I am a woman, please don't vote for me. And I don't want you to vote for me because of the, you know, my ethnicity, because I'm Latina. I want you to vote for me because I'm the most qualified for this job. But that being said, it is important that we have representation, a seat at the table. It makes a difference when, Everyone has a seat at the table one of my goals on the Supreme Court with the committee appointments I ask, how many women how many minorities we just got the first african-american woman on one of our committees and I, I started looking at it. I said, you know I've been here since oh nine and I had not noticed that we had never in the history of this committee had an african-american woman went to my colleagues and everyone's supportive um, and so I think you have to think about gender as okay. uh, somewhere where as a society, we need to work harder to make sure that we have representation, because our pers- but we, the way we understand things I, I you know I work with seven men, as you pointed out. and We listen to the same cases and we see different things. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you understand things differently, and that's why it's important to have diversity, and it adds to the dialogue. It adds to the decision-making process. <laughs> And it adds to the fairness, the institutional fairness, when you have a good representation of men, women, from all walks of life and and from different ethnicities.
5: The thing I would add to that is there's a lot of research out there, too, that shows that... Corporations that have diverse leadership, diverse boards, investment committees that have diversity in their makeup, whether it's gender or ethnicity, make better decisions and perform better. And so we certainly all have our own personal experiences that tell us that that's important, but the research across lots of fields and lots of areas tells you the same thing. Because as you said, there's people have different perspectives, they have different experiences, they have... Uh, their, their learning has come from different places, and when we're making really difficult decisions about really important issues that affect people that don't look like us, uh, it's important that we have those voices in the process, and the data, in addition to our own personal experiences, tells you uh, that those voices are important in getting to the best decisions in those circumstances.
0: I think that reflective democracy is terribly important and unfortunately absent in our state and in many states and certainly at the national level. A democracy that reflects who we are, our diversity of gender, race, ethnic origin, sexual identity and orientation, economic background. We can't possibly expect that any single one of us has the lived experiences that will inform our ability to make decisions on behalf of people who have had different experiences. And as a woman who was for many years on the city council and then in the state senate, I can tell you that it was very important to share my experiences as a woman who lived as a single mom, who struggled in poverty with some of the white, more privileged men that I served with, and I was fortunate that some of them were open, not just to listening, but to really hearing what my perspective (coughs) brought to the table. Representative Thompson and I passed an equal pay bill in 2013 that both of us worked extraordinarily hard to achieve. Because as women, we understand uniquely why that matters so much. And guess what? We were joined by men of privilege who voted in favor of that bill. We didn't have a single vote to spare coming out of the Senate. And thank goodness, Ms. T, is heading up the local and consent calendar, because I guarantee you, her presence coming over on the Senate floor staring down a few (laughs) senators who had some bills on her calendar was a very (laughs) important part of doing that. (laughs) And then Governor Perry vetoed that bill. Um, We, as, as women, I see a young woman standing in the back with her Believe Survivors placard around her neck. We've had those experiences, and that's why we understand that women sometimes have had these experiences, and they don't come forward for decades, if ever. We get it. That's why reflective democracy is so important. We know, I certainly know, that reproductive rights are the basis for opportunity for women. And if we don't have reproductive rights, we don't have opportunity. But I have ovaries, I once had a uterus, not anymore. (laughs) And I'm informed by that. My life experiences have informed that. And I can't expect that men are going to have had those same experiences, but I can hope that they're going to listen to me when my voice is part of the conversation. That's why I started Deeds Not Words. I I want every young woman to understand that her voice matters and that she can make a difference. And our young women, by the way, if you want to hear a little encouraging news this morning, in the 2017 legislative session, our young women were responsible for helping to pass seven pieces of legislation aimed at sex trafficking and sexual assault. They are making a difference. All of us have an opportunity to make a difference. We're only asking that our voices be represented. And thankfully right now we have a record number of women running for office, a record number of women voting, and hopefully we're going to have a record number of women representing us at every level of government by the time this election cycle is over.
2: We obviously cannot have a conversation about gender and power and leadership without talking about sexual harassment. And so I want to address this sort of ongoing imbalance of, in the power structure that so often facilitates unchecked sexual harassment. And President Livingstone, I wanted to start with you, given the ongoing fallout over the sexual assault crisis at Baylor. I know you're limited in what you can say, given ongoing legislation, uh, litigation. I'm sorry. But I, I, w- I wanted to ask you to sort of walk us through this, when you first took stock of the situation you were inheriting, what was the biggest source of the school's failure to adequately respond to sexual assault? Was it the culture that existed there? Was it a lack of women in leadership? What was your takeaway?
5: You know, when I uh, by the time I got to Baylor last summer, they had already made tremendous steps to address the issues and concerns that were on the campus. But I think if you look back at what happened in that particular situation, uh, you had a situation where you had guidance from the federal government that came down around Title IX, and uh, and and the institution. Uh, did not take that guidance as sort of law. They took it as guidance, which it was, but then chose to make different decisions about how to respond to that guidance than some institutions chose to do. And then because of that had not put some of the training and other things in place that probably would have led to things being reported um, differently or earlier in the process, and then, frankly, would have had the right processes and procedures in place when things were reported to actually address them in a timely way. And so it was a very painful and uh, important learning experience for our campus. And because of that, we do things completely differently now. We've got uh, very robust processes and policies and procedures in place. We do tremendous amounts of uh, training and education for our students, faculty, and staff about what sexual assault is. What consent is, uh, how to report. Uh, We have a lot of support mechanisms in place in terms of counseling, substance abuse uh, work, uh, to really do everything we can to educate people so that we can prevent sexual assault as much as possible and then if it does happen people know where to report and then we have the appropriate processes for investigating and adjudicating uh, those incidents when they do occur and so you know I think up front you have to acknowledge that this is a problem certainly we did on our college campus but it's a problem in all organizations so you have to acknowledge that there's that it's a problem that it's a real thing out there and then you have to make sure that you put all of the right education and policies and processes in place to try to prevent it and then to try to address it when you know something has happened. And that's certainly happened on our campus. And we are a very different campus now than we w- were a few years ago with regard to how we deal with these issues on our campus.
2: I want to I turn to the capital and general employment as well, because I think it's clear that while it's hard for just about anyone to come forward with an experience of sexual assault or harassment it's particularly hard when there's an aspect of privilege and power that plays into being able to speak out. And the capital, for example, seems to be ground zero for this sort of imbalance. You, you, know, Based on our reporting and that of others, it doesn't seem that the election of more women has made a drastic difference when it comes to women's safety and the power structure that exists that doesn't allow them to come forward. And so I, I'm curious what has been your reaction, uh, Mrs. T, but also for the rest of you, you know, reaction to how the legislature has handled allegations of sexual harassment and assault, and more broadly, how do you conquer a place like the Capitol with such a unique power structure?
3: Well, let me tell you, um, <clears throat> most of you may know that I've been here some 45 years. Hey, I had other stuff to do, Okay. When I first came to the Texas legislature, I remember going down on uh, First Street in in, uh, Congress at Nighthawk getting a chili burger. And I was amazed at how the men would sit in the restaurant and run their hands up the women's, the waitress dresses as they were taking their orders. And it it really wasn't any better at the Capitol, But, but let me tell you, more women coming in has made a difference. And because of what has been happening uh, recently and, and what has been brought to light, and we've become a, we became apprised a of it, the Texas House of Representatives on my side has put together some policies and we're putting together some policies and some things in place that are gonna be able to protect women and those who are working there, including the sergeants at arms, and all of those individuals um, at the Capitol uh, so that they would be able to work in freedom. We're going, we are looking forward to adding them to not only our uh, rules, but we also, if necessary, to implement uh, legislation uh, statutorily. About four years ago, I passed a bill to allow interns when they come and intern at the state capitol, and if they were sexually harassed, that they can bring a civil suit against those particular persons. So we are making progress on my side. Can't speak for the other one, but I'm telling you what we're making on the outside.
2: I was waiting for that.
0: <laughs> and, and Representative Thompson is right. I, I've watched what both of these chambers are doing as it relates to this issue, and the House is doing a much better job of looking internally at how to create a system of reporting and response. The Senate on the other hand, last session, had a single hearing and they invited only two witnesses and they refused to hear testimony from anyone else and the witnesses that they were invited are people who work for the Senate, for the Lieutenant Governor, who of course are subject to making sure they're keeping their bosses happy with them. This week, I don't know how many of you know this, but one of my former Senate colleagues, he's still in the Senate, Senator Schwertner, um, was accused credibly, and I believe her, because she has the text messages, Um, By a young woman of having sent when she was reaching out to him wanting to know about how to get a job in the capital He struck up a conversation with her first on LinkedIn and then moved the conversation to text messages and very quickly communicated to her that he wants to F her literally said that in his text and then sent a photograph of his genitals to her Okay Here we are days later, I haven't heard a single senator crying out for a process that's going to hold him accountable. It's absurd. absurd. This is the Texas Senate, for goodness sake. If we can't show a better response to the experiences of young women in our state government than we are seeing right now this week coming out of the Texas Senate in response to what? Senator Schwartner did, then we got a lot of work to do in making sure that we're going to elect people who are going to behave differently than that in the future. And I hope we're going to hold every one of our senators accountable to that.
2: Justice Smith, I'm curious, have you seen this played out? Obviously, the judiciary is is somewhat different, and you're elected, and it's a board, but have you seen this play out either in the dynamics of the board or I'm wondering if even in the cases in which you have taken on that you've had to sort of examine that power structure?
4: You know, and I think uh, this is such an important um, consequence of what's happening in, in the country right now is that we are having this dialogue and that people are coming forward and that at all levels of government, uh, people want to know and want to make change. And when you look at the US Congress and all of the money that they've paid out, this is not an issue that's owned by Republicans or Democrats. This is on both sides, where you have these sexual harassment uh, cases and many times involving young people. So I see that as a very positive outcome from the conversation, from from the, the movement, that we can have these conversations. What we need is more transparency, and what we need as citizens is to step up and, and to continue to insist that our representatives do what we elected them to do, and part of that is ensuring fairness in the workplace. That comes from the le- through legislation. Um, I think the courts, there is a, a um, group of former law clerks, that have come together to uh, help address any harassment issues in their federal clerks in the federal courts. Um, So I think that what you're seeing is every court, um, every institution being particularly um, attuned to ensuring a safe workplace, a workplace free of sexual harassment, um, and the, the judges will ultimately be called to pass upon the constitutionally of those statu- constitutionality of those statutes or interpret those statutes. So I won't get into specifics, but my takeaway is these are important conversations. We don't have to have them in a small room anymore. We can have them in a big room, but it's an issue that affects both parties, not just one.
3: I- and, and sexual harassment is already a, a violation of the law. <laughs> We are
2: somehow running out of time, so I'm going to have to skip over a, a several questions because I want to get to um, what I think has been sort of a, a point of tension even for me personally in covering these issues. because. You know, at the legislature, we've seen women in the house, in particular, work together to revise the policy to beef that up. And I think we can all agree that it's imperative to have women at the table in creating these policies. Same goes for at universities. But you know, I, and I often hear sort of the idea, well, we need to elect more women as a response to this. I don't think anyone disagrees with that as well. But
3: I- the, right, the right woman, though, the right. Sure. <laughs> okay.
2: But and so in establishing that there's so much work left to do, I wanted to close our conversation by talking about how do you best affect that cultural change that empowers women without putting the brunt of the work on women? you know, And, and whether it's sort of the glass cliff scenario that President Livingstone that you've sort of confronted um, or the idea that you end up having women sort of clean up. Situations that they were not really responsible in creating and and I'm wondering if you share sort of that tension that you know we put the pressure squarely on women to change the culture in a way that lessens the pressure on men to do their part when it comes to creating equal opportunities for everyone
4: and i'll just i 'll just start here because I, I know that you have a lot more to add to this because you've had that experience, but but women are leaders and, and I think we can't ignore. The, the, the champions, the men in our lives who've championed women's issues. Uh, and we're imperfect beings. And that's, in my view, the other the problem with how uh, society is approaching issues, you know, it's not always black or ideal in a world where the issues are gray if they were black or white they would never make it to the Supreme Court of Texas. so um, when you look at these complex issues I think you have to look at them at through through a lens that allows for disagreement uh, through a lens that that allows for um, you know for you to be the catalyst for change and also we can't do this alone. there are men who are champions uh, you know, I was selected from among 30 applicants or so, almost 30, I think, uh, to be, you know, the, the, nom- the, the appointed to the Supreme Court of Texas. I was selected by Governor Perry. He also appointed the first Latina to the Court of Criminal Appeals. So we have men who have been champions, although imperfect in other respects, possibly, arguably. But, but the idea that women should do it alone or that women must do it alone no, we have to come together to effect change and to find the champions. I've had as many women champions in my life if, as I've had ma- male champions in my life. Um, and I think we can lead the discussion, but we shouldn't try to do it alone. And I mean, as a woman at home, you know, my husband can't do anything right. As far as housework, no, don't do that. I'll just do it myself. Because, you know, we are really great. We're women. We're leaders. We're great. But we shouldn't try to do it alone. We should try to bring in those male champions into the arena and let them help us fight that fight.
5: You know, I would affirm that. And I, I talk lots of times. I go to a lot of events with deans and presidents and, and uh, in the academic institution. And oftentimes, and you probably see this in other areas, you have the different underrepresented groups that get together and talk about their problems and issues. And there's great value in that in sharing together the experiences that you've had. But I think oftentimes to actually get to the most significant change and the most significant solutions, we've got to bring people together. And you have to have people from the, ma- the majority groups from, frankly, those that are oftentimes in the power situations, coming along and being a part of those solutions. So I think we have got to certainly support one another and be champions uh, for others from underrepresented groups. But I think we have also got to reach out and bring others into that discussion and into those solutions to, uh, to advance change. Quicker and more significantly than if we're trying to do it alone in our various groups. And so I think that's critically important, and and so I think it's imperative for us to help people learn how to talk to people that are different than we are, and to work with people that are different and who believe differently than we are, and might actually have a different solution to a problem that we don't necessarily agree with. But how do we, knowing that we might agree, there's a problem. Now how do we get to the, to a common solution? And it does uh, take all of us, I think, coming together and being willing to do that and and do the hard work of fighting through those different perspectives and opinions to get to a solution to solve some of these really difficult problems that we have.
3: Let me just remind uh, uh, and I I think Wendy would agree with me on this one. When we work on issues in the legislature, we, we, we utilize everyone. And sometimes some issues related to women, men may not have thought about it. Let me give you an example. When Viagra came out the insurance companies, y'all laughing, but this is the truth. <laughs> the insurance companies immediately added it for coverage. No legislation necessary. I had to pass a law to get contraceptives to stop redlining in the bedroom. I had to pass a law because the, the, the men had never thought about, uh, you know, maybe we, you know, women needing it. Uh, most people say, well they, they just, you know, uh, uh, some women, when I said the right women coming in, some women came in, oh no, we don't need this because it's gonna make girls promiscuous. It's gonna do this and it's gonna do that. We had to pass a law to allow uh, contraceptives to be covered by the insurance. We had to pass a law to allow uh, the human papillomus virus testing to be covered and, 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 and we had to, go, I had to go over and fight with a senator, male senator, and talk about letting him see Jesus before his time, <laughs> so, <laughs> 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 because he couldn't understand the significance of having a, a, that test. And I told him, I said, let me tell you something. This test is significant because if we can detect cervical cancer early enough, we save the life of a mother, we save the life of a family, and we save the life of that community which she's a part of. So we have to, we do engage men, we do get them to help us. But sometimes things that are so ordinary to them and they don't even think about it, It takes a woman to think about these things that are necessary for us to keep going too.
2: Wendy, I'll let you have the last word before we open it up to questions from the audience. Well, I think a great example of
0: the fact that this is an issue that both men and women Um, gender equity, gender justice is an issue that men and women both can embrace, and we've got great champions who are men who are doing that. I was watching the hearing this morning and listening to Senators Leahy and Durbin, who fit in my classification of old white men, um, (laughs) who are extraordinary in their capacity to understand, relate to, and champion these issues for women, Um, and I've been particularly struck by both of them in the last few days. But if we women aren't sharing our experiences by being at the table to make sure that we're creating those allies, as Representative Thompson just said, then it's very less likely that it's going to happen. Um, If I weren't so upset, I would probably think of this or say it a little more diplomatically this morning. But I'm at a point right now where I feel like, as it relates to men and not the right women, either get on board or get the hell out of the way. And we, we have the power to do something about that. Um, and that doesn't mean we have to have a microphone on the Senate floor in our hand to be able to have the power to do something about that. But it certainly means that we have to own the power that we have to speak up in committee hearings, to write letters, to make phone calls to the people who represent us and let them know that we expect by God to be represented. And if they don't do that, that we vote with every Fiber of our being in every single race imaginable to put people in every level of governance that are going to be reflective of and representative of and empathetic to the issues that are uniquely impactful of women. Thank you.
2: All right, folks, we've got about 15 minutes for questions from the audience. I'm going to try to get through as many as possible. Like I said, please keep them short. End them with a question mark. I don't want to cut you off, but I will, out of respect for the folks behind you. We will start down here. I want to thank you all for letting me ask my question. My name's Katana. And yesterday was a terrible day for both political parties. I believe Dr. Ford, and I stand with her but I feel that the Democratic Party really used her as a pawn for their um, political beliefs, and I feel like the Republican Party would have done the same if they had the chance. Do you feel that this um, political gain that the Democratic Party had um, would have lessened her story and lessened any future um, testimonies of sexual assault?
0: What I worry about particularly And I would love to talk to you more about this afterward. I I see the political gamesmanship, no question, that occurred. But I do believe that with all sincerity, there are many people in the US Senate who believe it is their responsibility if these allegations are true to keep this person from being on the US Supreme Court. And it is their responsibility to hear that out. Um, What I worry about though, based on the way things seem to be heading, is that the courage that it took for Dr. Ford to come forward. And the fact that um, every senator who heard from her judged her at least in some way, as credible, many still chose to minimize her experience and its impact on whether this person was suitable to serve on the Supreme Court. And what will that say to other survivors, men and women, who feel like they have a story that needs to be told, and yet there won't be a response to it. And this comes on the heels, by the way, of our education secretary, Betsy DeVos, rapidly and dramatically unwinding protections that took us years to build for young women and men, again, it goes both ways, who are survivors, who are victimized while they're on our college campuses. It's a very upsetting time. Um, I'm pleased, as Representative Thompson said, at the very least we're believing children right now. Um, Some of whom grew up to be adults and who are recounting things that happened to them many years ago. I hope that is a, a forward trend for us giving credence to the experiences that people have, why it is sometimes they delay in saying anything, and also understand it's our responsibility to cl- create a climate where people feel safe coming forward, and that they're going to receive an appropriate response to a deeply personal experience
2: that they share. We're going to jump over here. Go ahead. Should I hold- I have another question for Ms. Davis. Um, so, hi, I'm um, from the Ann Richards School for Young Women Leaders here in Austin. And <laughs> thank you. Um, how, as students and women and people who can't necessarily vote, um, can we get more women like you and like Julie Oliver, who campaign without political action committees and are ready to support and advocate for women in the Congress? and? the Senate and as governor and as president um, to run and to get elected?
0: First of all, the Ann Richards School is extraordinary. Um, And students at Ann Richards in the 2017 session demonstrated exactly how powerful you can be even when you don't yet have the right to vote. Because you all came up with the idea for a bill to create a statewide curriculum to help prevent sex trafficking in our Texas public schools. And you worked uh, with Deeds Not Words, um, with Senator Zafferini in filing that bill and working on the amendments to the bill in advocating for the bill in both the House and the Senate in committee hearings, and in passing that bill into law and having it signed by the governor in a single session. That is amazing. It's truly amazing. So you have a lot of power. um, And that's just one example. Of course, volunteering on a campaign Uh, for someone who inspires you, male or female, is an important way to do that. We are starting a campaign right now at Deeds Not Words for people who do have the privilege of the vote um, to consider someone who doesn't, whether that is a younger person, whether it's an undocumented immigrant, with the idea that I have a vote, but we collectively have a voice and I will use the privilege of my vote to be your voice, um, and I hope that when you're 18, you will vote in every single election that you possibly have the opportunity to vote in.
2: We've got a little less than 10 minutes. Is there anyone in the back? Go ahead, ma'am. Hi, um, I think
0: I know the answer, but I just wanna hear what each one of you has to say. Um, we're in a historic moment right now, as Jeff Flake has announced he's going to you know, go with Kavanaugh. Um, He'll be here tomorrow, (laughs) maybe, I don't know,
2: Um, how he'll show his face. I just wonder what each one of you would say
3: to him right now if you had the opportunity to see him tomorrow. Well, I think I would say that I knew he was going to do it all the time.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Guzman? I can't comment specifically on, on votes or the nomination because of the code of judicial conduct. And I said yesterday on social media this panel was a bit atypical for me, but I do think it's important for our citizens to, to understand who serves on the state's highest court, who makes you know the, the final decisions on all issues of state law. But I don't I think more important than what I would say to him as a judge, it's what it's up to the American people to send whatever message. They think some will agree, some will disagree, but as citizens, just as was mentioned, we we need to exercise uh, our right to vote and we need to use our voices. Um, And so, uh, you know, let him know tomorrow, when he's here, what you think.
5: And I think whether it was him or any of the other senators that are involved in this that are going to vote on it, I would want them to think deeply about their reasoning for making the decision that they're making. One of the, We have some non-negotiables in how we make decisions at Baylor. Our board has these non-negotiables, my leadership team. And the, the last one is, are you making the right decision for the right reasons? And so I would just sort of ask at the core, are you making the right decision for the right reasons? Uh, because this has become very political, which oft- oftentimes are not the right reasons for making a decision. So I think that's what I was c- asking him or, frankly, any of the sinners on either side of the aisle as they're making the decision. Are you doing the right thing for the right reasons?
0: Um, I agree with what Representative Thompson said. I, I never believed he was going to come and do the right thing. I just didn't, unfortunately.
2: We might have time for one more, depending on what our answers are like. Go ahead. Oh my gosh, one more. Okay. (laughs) First of all, thank you so much for being here. Y'all are queens, this is amazing. Uh, (laughs) uh, I go to UT, my name is Katya. I have to write this down because I'm so nervous. Uh, Y'all mentioned how important it is for women and gender minorities to have a seat at the table and a voice in the discourse, which is just so true, first of all. Um, But we saw yesterday with Dr. Ford not being believed and Senator Feinstein being cut off that even when women have a seat at the table and a voice, they're not being heard because of ignorance and dismissal. So in addition to voting out these people that are bigots and intentionally ignorant, what other suggestions do you have to make us heard inside of positions of power? Let's go down the line again, maybe.
3: Persistence.
4: And you know, it was interesting, there was an article in the New Yorker this morning that, that I was reading about this issue of poised, and I guess because I'm a Latina, I always get, oh, you're so articulate and so poised, and I'm like, what did you expect, and you know, why is it different? You would never hear someone say to a man, oh, you're so poised. And so I've never heard it in all these years. So I think that the presumptions for us are different as women. So the presumption has to be you don't have emotional control, and therefore, when you speak, you're poised because you have everything in check. So I do think it's it's different for women, and, and, you know, it would be disingenuous to say that it wasn't. It is. But what can we do as women? I'm going to go back to where I started. Encourage the dialogue, accept that the right woman isn't always the one that thinks just like you. The right woman is the woman that has a vision, that has the best interest of America at heart. And there may be places where I disagree with this woman or this man. But you have to get out there and engage the issues and engage the policy issues and what? Vote. That's how we're gonna make a difference.
5: I would say that Uh, as a woman or an underrepresented person, you do have to have a strong voice and you have to own your voice and really be willing to push back when you don't feel like you're being heard. But I think the other thing that is really important in those circumstances is if you see that happening to somebody in a setting that you're in, then you need to actually help that person have a voice as well. And I've seen men do it, I've seen women do it, and it actually sends a message to everybody else that sort of calls them on the fact that they're not letting that person be heard or they're owning that person's idea later in a conversation. So I think we certainly have to own our own voice in those situations, but then we also have to help each other have a voice and be heard in those situations. And the more we work together to do that, the less likely it is that it's going to keep happening.
0: Yeah, I agree with that 100%. I would just kind of echo everything that the other panelists said. Be better prepared than they are. Be passionate. And don't back down in the face of what you know to be the truth. Um, And don't let them try to bully you into silence. That happens a lot to women. Just throw your shoulders back, as a former U.S. senator used to say, put your lipstick on, throw your shoulders back, hold your head up high, and speak your truth, because you have every right to do it and every right to expect that you're going to be heard.
2: I think on that note, we will go ahead and end it just because I don't think we'll have time to get through another one before we're ushered out of here. Thank you all so much for coming. Please give them one last round of applause. Thank you so much.
1: That was Gender, Power, and Leadership, recorded at Capitol Factory in Austin as part of the 2018 Texas Tribune Festival. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Conversations with the Texas Tribune. Visit texastribune.org slash events for more information about our public interviews. And if you like what you heard on this podcast, please tell your friends. Until next time, this is Evan Smith.